Welcome to Season 8 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so glad that you joined me today. It's wonderful to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding our episodes useful. So please take the time to subscribe, share the episodes and leave some feedback. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal speaking people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording. I pay respects to the elders past and present of the Darawal Nation and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people that are listening to this. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Today I have the great privilege of sharing a conversation with you that I recently had with Dr Timothy Hawkes. Tim has taught overseas as well as in Australia and led co-educational and single-sex schools for nearly three decades. This includes one of Australia's oldest independent schools, the King's School in Parramatta. He has been an advisor for the federal government, was the founding chair of the Australian Boarding Schools Association, the founding chairman of the Heads of Independent Co-educational Schools of Victoria, and served as a head of school representative on the governing board of the International Baccalaureate Organisation and on the Board of Association of Heads of Independent Schools of Australia. Tim is a recipient of an Australian Government Excellence as a Headmaster Award in 2007 and an OAM for Services to Education in 2014. He has also co-authored a dozen books on educational leadership and spoken at educational conferences around the world. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Dr. Tim Hawkes, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time. It's an absolute delight to be with you, Matt. Fantastic. Where are you phoning in from? Well, I'm phoning in from Kirribilli. I actually am, this is a little known fact, but I actually am the Prime Minister's political advisor. I'm right next door. In fact, I'm looking now as I speak across to his place here at Kirribilli. He's very seldom there as Albo. And anyway, the window goes up in the morning. I give him his instructions. But unfortunately, it's usually just lost in the breezes of Kirribilli. But no, I'm living here in Kirribilli with my wife, Janie, and we just love it here. Fantastic. And quite possibly the most important question for our discussion. Uh, what's your coffee order from when I can shoot okay, over? Right, okay. Paper? Now get this straight, uh, Matthew Green, because there will be questions afterwards. Now I, I'm I'm into a flat white, uh, but I'm I'm into I'm into sort of oat milk or soy or right. almond. I have no particular preference on one of those three. Flat white almond, thank you very much. No sugar. Fantastic. I'll uh, I'll make a note of that. Um, is there a book that you have read? It could be in terms of education. It could be more broadly than that. Uh, that has caused you to stop and reconsider a few things in your life. Wow. Great question, Matt. Look, listen, I read a book, uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, um, a couple of decades ago, Ronald Sider. It just absolutely challenged the socks off me. Here I was living uh, in a play, it, it basically as a teacher, as an educator, uh, I thought that I was towards a shallow end of income and all of that, feeling terribly sorry. I was, I'm very good at the victim thing. <laughs> um, I'm very postmodern. You, you'd be very proud of me. I am. And when I read this, it just challenged the socks off me and I realised I was in the top 1% of the world and just how fortunate I was and what was I going to do about that in terms of using such gifts and assets that I had for the greater good rather than on myself. 
No, that that was it's a great book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Fantastic. I'll make sure that I put a, a link to any resources that you mention uh, in the show notes. Uh, Tim, uh, just wondering, what was your upbringing like and what are you most grateful for from your parents? Well, look, I'm an Aussie, although I spent much of my time overseas in Great Britain where I went hunting for a wife, found one, by the way, she was <laughs> lost alas. I found her lurking at Durham University where I was majoring in a double degree in barkeeping and rugby union. No, I wasn't. I was yeah. actually doing... Uh, an honours B.Ed. program. So, yes, I uh, my dad was an Anglican minister, actually. Okay. Um, and as a, as a sort of a, a, a vicar's kid, I was pretty anti all things of, of a spiritual nature and, and really only made my own journey in that space when I turned 18 uh, and, um, and, and developed my own faith stance as a Christian. But uh, what am I grateful for? Look, I, I'm grateful that my parents... Um, invested in me. My dad didn't invest massively emotionally, but he was very practical. He would say things like, I've done my duty. And I would sometimes want to say to him, Dad, I don't want you to do your duty. I just want you to love me. You know, my mum was the other side of things. She, she was um, a, a lovely, gifted woman, terribly creative, and very much the actress and the bishop, my, my two parents. And I think <laughs> the combination of their genes has produced me um, and for that, I'm just very, very grateful. I was born a twin and I have a, a very ugly, very ugly, Matt, very ugly twin brother. He's identical. And um, he, he's a, a minister. He, um, he's got a couple of PhDs or doctorates. Uh, he, Reverend Dr. Nick Hawkes, he writes a lot of books. We've had a competition, Nick and I, between, you know, the, we started off having a competition about triple jump. And then we've ended up having a competition about the number of books published. He has basically beat me in both of these areas. And I'm kind of just say I'm in therapy about that. Yeah. Fantastic. So uh, what are conversations like around the dinner table between you two? Is there, does the healthy rivalry continue throughout? No, no, it's nothing like healthy. It's very unhealthy. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's, no, no, look, I, I love Nick to death. And unfortunately, the dear thing is got stage four cancer. He's very, very sick not long for this world, but um, he, he, uh, he continues to write um, and he's pro providing a massive essay on how to die well. Uh, 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 and he remains, although his body is wasting away with multiple cancers, um, he remains positive and writes. He writes for the Bible Society quite regularly, Reverend Dr. Nick Hawkes. He writes uh, Christian novels. He, um, uh, and he has basically brought we brought each other up uh, Matt because uh, basically dad was in the military as a military chaplain we moved all around the world to England and Scotland Wales Cyprus Hong Kong Germany and we would move every 18 months and it was very disruptive uh, to us as a family but the one constant I had uh, was Nick my twin and um, and so we 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 basically made a pact that whatever else was happening in the home, that we would have each other's backs. Uh, and that, that having a twin for me was probably the most uh, precious thing um, that, uh, that, that I'm thankful for in my life. Fantastic. What a beautiful story. Um, can I just take you back a little bit, Tim? I, you mentioned that when you were 18, you kind of moved towards... Uh, spiritual things. It tends to be the opposite. Uh, people tend to move the other way. So tell me sort of what was happening in your life at that time and 
And uh, why did you sort of begin to tread that path? Well, I was at a boarding school in England only because the British Army paid for my fees, which was wonderful because my dad said <laughs> he wouldn't have done. But the God bless him. But I was off, I was at another King School, King School Rochester, a school yeah. that was marvelous in its mediocrity in all things. Um, but it was very good, uh, Matt, at being old. It had been founded in 604. Um, we are, were the second, still are, the second oldest school in Great Britain, the oldest being King's Canterbury, founded in 597 by St. Augustine, bringing Christianity to southern England. He then moved seven years later to the Medway Towns and founded basically what is now the King's School, Rochester. Um, it, we, we had a physics teacher, and being a physics teacher, the dear thing, he had, a, he had the EQ skills of a brick and a body odor problem. And but he, he, he actually also had a most amazing Christian faith, and, but he was actually a most amazing person and also a very gifted sailor. He had a 16-foot wayfarer dinghy. He invited Nick and myself to go on a, you know, two, three-week voyages around the south coast of England, bouncing around the Great. sort of whole dark country, just think of that, um, the rocky coves, the sea wreckers uh, um, uh, uh, territory, and... Um, and it was really after a, a massive storm, we were nearly killed off St. Ives. Nothing like a near-death experience to concentrate the mind rather wonderfully. And, um, and we were challenged as we rode out the storm in the harbour after having beaten our way back, um, after having nearly been wrecked on the lee shore there by the southwesterlies. Um, and Tim actually explained, to the, 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 the actual skipper of the boat was also called Tim, Tim Milbert, um, he explained the gospel and, and we, we thought, wow, there's a deep hunger uh, in our lives. And although, you know, Nick and I were tolerably successful, I was about to play a bit of first grade rugby over there and we had a place at Durham and things like that, Durham University. Um, there, 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 was a, there was a sort of a, basically a, a God-filled blank in my heart. And, and I realised that I couldn't inherit my faith from my parents. Wow. And I think that was a really important revelation to me, Matt, and I so, so that I actually needed to appropriate the faith for myself. And so I sat down, prayed about it, and made a commitment to follow Christ. Fantastic. I am um, very aware of the uh, the coast of southern England. I was born over in Nottingham, and my mum uh, lived for many years at Truro and Falmouth. Yeah. And uh, there are some treacherous seas down there. So, uh, well, my word, uh, not for nothing is it known as Rex's territory. And um, but not in not in my new world. I was just down the road. My first teaching gig was at Loughborough, Loughborough, uh, just down the road from Nottingham. Yeah. Uh, but yes, my 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 wife Janie, she 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 uh, her folks came from Bude, not yep. a huge distance from Truro, but it's just a lovely part of the world. It, it sure is. And, and Tim, for those people that are not familiar with your journey, I mean, we couldn't possibly squeeze it into this podcast, but are you able to just give us a couple of highlights uh, of your career in education? Um, and like I said, I'll put links to all articles about you uh, in the show notes. But uh, what are some of the highlights? How did you get to where you are today? Oh, well, it's a big journey. <laughs> it, it is very flattering if any, when anybody takes an interest in, in oneself. But look, it, it I, um, I, after school, uh, I was either going to go into the military, uh, uh, go to Sandhurst, or, or go into teaching. And I, I realised, in fact, that I wanted to teach. And so I went to Durham University, where they did an honours B.Ed. program. And as I said, where I met Janie, who's also a teacher. 
um, taught for um, six or so years at Loughborough Grammar School in the East Midlands, as I mentioned earlier, um, and, and, and just loved, loved teaching. I just love the idea of investing in wow. other people. I loved dispensing and knowledge. I loved the challenge of trying to make things understandable and learnable and memorable and, and interesting. Um, you know, sometimes it's not always easy pouring knowledge down the thin-necked vessels of those in my class, but uh, that was a challenge I really enjoyed. After six or so years in England, being an Aussie, I, I, Jane and I thought about it and prayed about it, and we thought, look, we, we will actually love to bring our family up in Australia. So I came to Australia, was given a job at, at Knox Grammar School here in Sydney, a, a boys' school, and became a housemaster there. Um, uh, eight or nine uh, very happy years there. Um, and, and then was offered the headship of St. Leonard's College, a co-educational school which also offered not only the VCE but the International Baccalaureate, had two campuses, a fabulous school. I, I was offered the headship at the age of 35, so naturally I felt that I knew everything. And... Um, and when I got there, rapidly realised that I I didn't. But such was the grace and uh, of and forbearance of those that were part of the St Leonard's community. I had eight very very fruitful and happy years. The school, despite my administration, thrived. Uh, and um, and then I was offered the headship of uh, the King School here in Sydney, the King School Parramatta, Australia's oldest independent school, founded in 1831. And I was the headmaster there at King's for nearly uh, 31 years. Um, and then about, so about five years ago, I retired from that. And now I run um, a, a ed tech startup called Truewell. It stands for Teachers, T-R-U-Well. So T-R-U. And it's basically a well-being um, program, which we're making available to schools around the world, um, offering basically well-being resources for, to schools, both for teachers and for students. And I've also been doing a little bit of executive placement, finding heads for schools. So uh, Matthew Green, you've got to do a judicious amount of sucking up to me. Uh, and um, uh, so I'm still, still doing a bit of work in that space. Um, and I also continue to do a bit of work for the Australian Boarding Schools Association. And, and Matt, if you were to ask me what, what am I proudest of? I find that a very difficult question to answer. I'd probably say wife and three children, but uh, um, but thereafter, probably this, the establishing of the Australian Boarding Schools Association uh, with Mr. Richard Stokes, a great friend and colleague of mine, and and that's now become the peak body for boarding. Uh, and we, we actually train more boarding staff than any other organisation in the world. So having written that programme and formed that up and being the founding chairman of that, that for me, probably, if you were to press me, is, is the professional achievement that, that, that has given me the greatest satisfaction. That and teaching boys in year nine, that a lot is in fact not one word, but two. That yeah. was the other great achievement of my life. Fantastic. Uh, Tim, there's there's just so much in there, but I would be curious not to ask, uh, to take you back to Durham University, uh, where you uh, met your beautiful wife. Um, 
Do you, who made the first move? Do you remember what that uh, moment was like? Did you see her across the room or did she approach you? Well, I have to say, when I first saw her, I met her at the Freshest Ball uh, and I, she just looked so gorgeous. I thought, golly, you know, she's got a she must have a boyfriend who's who's got a red sports car, a black belt in judo uh, yeah. and, and who's very rich. Um, but, you know, I felt instantly in love with her right literally with, okay. within the first few days. But it took me she was a little bit disobedient. So it took me about an, a year or so to land her. I mean. For goodness sake, she started going out with one or two other people and I was sort of huffing and, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth. But, but look, um, we, we recognised that we both had a similar faith. I, mine was a fairly new one. Hers was a little bit more mature. She'd made a commitment to Christ a few years earlier than I had. Um, and, um, yes, we, the Durham Intercollegiate Christian Union was just amazing. Christian, one of the big Christian unions of any university in Great Britain. We would have all the great you know, evangelical Christian leaders come speak to us, your Leith Samuels, your David McInnes, uh, David Watsons, um, and, 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 and Stott, and, and John Stott, and people like this. We were enormously blessed to be able to sit at the feet of these spiritual giants. Um, yes, so I then went to, my dad was posted, uh, Matt, to Hong Kong, and I got involved uh, over the long three or four month break, three month break with Jackie Pullinger in the Society of St. Stephen. And I started working with opium and heroin drug addicts in the Kowloon walled city, particularly with the 14K triad gang. Um, and, uh, and there was introduced particularly to, to the reality of the Holy Spirit and, <laughs> and to the fact that the Holy Spirit could be prevailed upon to produce other things other than good weather for Sunday school picnics. And so anyway, um, yeah, we, we just saw the most miraculous intervention in the lives of drug addicts, uh, instantaneous withdrawal from opium and heroin drug addiction. So when I came back from, um, from that experience in Hong Kong, um, I, I think Jane recognised that something pretty profound that happened in my life uh, and that my certainly my commitment uh, if, and, and to, to devotional life and um, to wanting to fulfill the Great Commission in Matthew 28, to go out and to make disciples of all nations. And particularly people in my corridor, um, you know, there was a great move of the Holy Spirit and, and, um, and, and almost all of them became Christians in the period of that year. Um, anyway, not only did that happen, but, but, but Jane and I became an item and, uh, and the rest is history, as they say. Fantastic. I love hearing how people got together. And I, I know my wife has a very different perspective of our, uh, how we got together than I do. Uh, I tend to think I was much more involved in the process and made things happen. But when you ask her, she will give you the uh, the true side of the story. I'm not saying that's your case at all, but it's really... Let, let me just tell you, it, it is. Uh, Jane's version is, is, is slightly different to mine. In fact, quite, quite a lot different. And I think probably mirrors yours. Uh, I didn't realise, but but uh, I wasn't the one that was playing, being played. I was the one being played, uh, rather, and uh, and I was reeled in by Jane. So, yeah, she, I think she was totally in control, I have to say, and she has been to this day. God and bless her. It's so lovely to hear. Uh, Tim, I was just wondering, um, going back to your experience as a headmaster, um, what were some of the things you loved about the role and what were some of the challenges? I know your career spans multiple decades in that role but what were some of the your great joys in that time and also some of the challenges well Matt I think uh, yes 28 years of headship 
um, both in co-ed schools and single-sex schools, um, for me has been just the most enormous privilege. Um, some people find, uh, if you like, permanency and significance in life by colouring in railway stations with spray cans. I had the privilege, in a sense, of finding significance in the educational world. And I was just never, never forgot the enormous privilege that I had to be working in that space. I think for me, um, I, what I loved particularly about education was the relationships that are formed, the relationships that you would form with your students, the relationships that you would form with staff. And indeed, in, in my case, uh, obviously the relationships in other areas too, including the media and, and stuff like that. And, but I would have to be honest and say that, that over the 28 years, the job of school leadership, which had initially started off as being centered on teaching and learning, which had initially started off as being a very relational expression of leadership, became more and more um, a bureaucratic uh, expression of leadership and for me became more and more um, unfulfilling uh, as I spent most of my time dealing with compliance issues, dealing with legal issues, dealing with media disasters of which I, I, I tend to specialise um, and, and much of it my own fault. But it, it was, it was uh, um, basically an expression of school leadership at the end uh, that I, I felt um, less at home with. And therefore, when I reached the age to retire, um, and after, as I say, 28 years of headship, I was, I, I felt, no, this now needs to be left to leaders who've got programmable computers and, and who understand buttons and, and spreadsheets. Um, and um, who, if you if you like, have strengths in the administrative and bureaucratic field. And whereas I think my particular strengths are rather dinosauric uh, and we're rather more on a relational element. So I think that's what I've seen in, in terms of, I'm not saying trying to be pejorative here and say that one is better than the other. I'm just in a sense describing what I've seen uh, in how um, leadership in schools uh, has changed in terms of its definition and its jobs. Um, before much more relational, now much more transactional, much more bureaucratic. Yeah, interesting. Um, and Tim, how do you um, how do you define leadership? And has that has that definition changed over the years? Because I know in my uh, sort of short career in leadership, um, the notion of what a leader is has trained changed dramatically. Is that have, have you discovered something similar, or how has that notion changed um, over the years for you? Well, yes, I, I, I mean, there's all sorts of definitions of, of leaders and there are all sorts of categories of leader. I think essentially, though, you can't improve much on, on, on the definition. You know, you're a leader if somebody else is following. Yeah. And that disqualifies a good number of our politicians and those in, in elected offices and those with reserved car spaces and with awesome range of secretaries. So, <clears throat> you know, who is following? And I think that that probably is in many ways the greatest privilege of a leader, that you have the capacity, uh, you have the privilege, you have the, even the, the expectation to, to, to feed into the lives of others. And I remember, I remember somebody uh, writing to me from, from South Australia, Unley in South Australia, saying, Dr. Hawkes, would you like to live forever? And if so, would you like to give us three strands of your hair and we can preserve your DNA so that scientists in the future can make you again? a la Jurassic Park. 
Well, I refused that invitation, largely because they also wanted 360 bucks. And being happily married, I didn't have that. Secondly, mm -hmm. uh, if you're losing hair as quickly as me, you couldn't afford to give three strands of it to anyone. And thirdly, um, one of the great, I think, one of the great privileges of educational leaders and indeed educators generally is that in many senses, we live forever anyway. We live through our, our students. Um, they may deny it uh, in, in many ways, but they draw from us our knowledge. They draw from us their values. They draw from us uh, skill sets. Uh, so in many ways, uh, we, we have that great privilege. And for me, as an educator, that has been the thing which has fired me and kept me going even through some very dark times in educational leadership. Um, so yes, I think for me that 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 has been the greatest, the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction, and that is in a sense being, if you like, um, the mentor um, uh, 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 to to others, and indeed, and sometimes even being the father. I um, and uh, you know that's that, that for me is just the greatest privilege. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there's uh, Tim. There's there's so much in that, and I, I'm just wondering, um, what has being a father taught you from one dad to another? Uh, what's it taught you, and what are you? Um, what lessons have you gleaned from your children? Well, uh, not everyone is able to be a father, and 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 I want to acknowledge that up front, yeah, and of course. I, I want to say obviously for me being a, a father of three my son peter and two daughters alicia and and pippa uh, they're all adults now with their own children um has been just the most enormous joy but i have many friends uh, who have not been able to have have children uh, and yet they are still fathers uh, matt mm, they absolutely. they they have sown into the lives of nephews and nieces, they have sown into the lives of, of other young people. And in every way they have in, in my book, been the most extraordinarily gifted um, uh, fathers. Um, one of my great privileges is, is to be an ambassador for the Fathering Project, which is basically an organization set up to promote um, quality fathering in, in Australia. Uh, it is a great organisation. And uh, if anybody would like to develop their skills in, in that space, then I would encourage them to, to, to Google the Fathering Project and to get involved in, in, in the many activities that they run. But one of the things that I'm reminded of when I'm working with the Fathering Project is, is just what goes so desperately and terribly wrong if, when we get fathering uh, wrong when we don't do it properly. We, we find that incarceration rates increase by 80%. We find that learning decreases by a similar amount. Gosh. We find uh, that um, drug dependency and delinquency uh, increases by at least 60%. We find uh, that uh, a whole raft of psychosocial issues emerge, including depression um, and a whole range of, of other depressive uh, illnesses, uh, and so we've got to get it right. And um, yes, and and it is interesting that uh, I read some research not long ago that said that one of the best predictors of um, of successful learning outcomes uh, for children in schools was to have uh, 
uh, an active and present father, um, a father or a father equivalent. Now, I need to say father equivalent because, um, of course, there are many families that uh, are reconstituted or in, indeed may, may have a, a, a father figure rather who, who may in fact not even be male. Um, and, and, it, and providing that they, they give that, that love, providing that they're able to feed into the lives of, young, of, of the young in a manner similar to, to a, a, a normal, if you like, or a typical father, then they are doing a wonderful and invaluable job. I think one of the great fears, I think, that our young have, particularly just talk about young boys, is that they're never quite sure whether they've made it as a man. And in many ways, that insecurity often can cause them to be ultra-masculine and to develop a toxic form of masculinity, which is so damaging to society and indeed to themselves. Yes. And... I think that one of the things, the most important things that a father can do or a father figure can do is to teach their children and particularly their sons that strength need not be disassociated from gentleness mm. uh, and, um, and, and to model the best qualities of, of, of care and devotion. And of course, one of the most important roles that a father or a father figure should have is to support the mother or the mother figure. Um, so one of the best ways in the sense of showing love to a child is to show love to that child's mother or mother equivalent mm. um, and, and, to, and to model compassion and care. And, and um, I mean, it's no good the father sort of berating their, their children about, about being kind and then 10 minutes later having a row with their partner and which ends in, in a slammed door and shouted voices and injured silence. So yes, I, um, I, I think fathering and quality fathering, if we get that right, both in Australia and indeed overseas, a huge number of our social ills mm. in society will disappear. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Tim. I, I'm the proud um, uh, driver of the fathering project in, in, in my school. And it Excellent. is a, um it's truly a wonderful it, it, it truly is a wonderful organization and so i work in a school where there is a desperate need for um strong fathers and father figures and and uh yeah i couldn't agree more about the importance of that um thank you so much for for sharing that so honestly and um, tim i was just wondering um i'll take you back to to school all the way back to your uh a primary schooling, uh, was there a teacher uh, that made a difference in your life? And have you had a chance to thank them? <laughs> well, probably not a primary school. I had a primary school teacher called Miss Grigson, who who um, used to put sticky tape across my mouth to stop from talking. Oh, uh, and because I had now, a problem you? even way back then. So there <laughs> you go at the Border Town uh, Primary School. Um, at the Woomera Area School uh, up, up there in the deserts at the Woomera Rocket Range where my father was posted. Um, I had a number of, of fine teachers and I really appreciated my education, my, my primary education in the state sector here in Australia. When I was overseas, um, uh, I, uh, I, I mentioned a physics teacher who, who took me sailing, who obviously made a huge impact upon my life, particularly spiritually. 
I'd probably, if I may, in a sense, not answer your question, but go to tertiary, to university. Yes. I met at Durham University, Professor Ewan Anderson, who was a lecturer, a professor of geography. And, uh, and Professor Anderson took a personal interest in me. And, um, and he, he brought me into his study one day and he said, uh, Hawks, I'm going to invite you to do something you've never done before. And I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. You know, I was wondering what sort of trip was this on bearing in mind we are talking the very early 70s uh, and so I said well what's that uh, professor he said I'm going to invite you to, to to pause think well I said well that's that's a bit rude I said I uh, you know and he said no he said you've gone missing in your own essays you're very diligent you'll do an excellent literature review but you've gone missing what is your opinion what is your strength of conviction in this space and what he did, Matt, was to prevent me for the rest of that uh, semester from using any references. And, and I was to express only my own opinion on topics. And that, for me, was very much a Damascan Road conversion experience, which changed me from just being a basically a rugby buffhead into being, a, 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 quite frankly, a, a, bit of a, a bit of an academic and one who absolutely loved learning and thinking. And that's when... And interestingly enough, that same Professor Ewan Anderson, when I was doing, finishing him off my PhD at Macquarie University, they said, oh, we've got three, three um, examiners for you. We've, we've picked up one from the um, um, University of London, another one from the University of Sydney, and they said, we've got this other one, University of Durham, uh, Professor Ewan Anderson. And I thought, wow. So if you're wondering why yeah. it is that anybody would give me a PhD, well, you're beginning to realise that I had the debt stacked. And anyway, Professor Ewan Anderson was very kind. And... And not surprisingly, in fact, my PhD was very much in his space. It was into basically it was in the area of geography and maps and mapping and area of photography. So, um, yeah, he had a profound impact upon my life, Matt. He taught me basically how to think. Uh, and he actually encouraged me to believe in myself and to back myself in terms of opinion. I might just say that after, after that semester, if I should fail to um, have proper footnotes thereafter, I was in big strife. But for one semester... He banned me, and that was an amazingly healing and insightful um, medicine, academic medicine that I had to take in order to cure me from mediocrity. Fantastic. So a, a PhD in maps and aerial photography. Um, yeah. uh, why? And uh, <laughs> what did yes, you yes it's right up there. I really, really felt that that's going to totally prepare me for headship. Not. Yeah. Um, like, look, take me back to your decision making. So, <laughs> well, look, the, the bottom line was um, basically maps are the tool for the geographer, the, the main tool that geographers typically use, a map of some sort or other, be they iconic maps like aerial photographs or, or indeed you know, topographic maps using symbols. Um, I had read a lot about from child developmental theorists like Piaget and Inhelder uh, that. Children, and, and, and until they had reached the age of 10 to 12, could not understand symbolism. And therefore, it was totally inappropriate to introduce them to topographic maps, which, of course, basically involve symbols. You use a cross for a church, a black square for a house, a line to indicate a contour line and a steep slope and so on. I did not agree. Now, there is the impudence of youth, isn't it, that I, do, I didn't agree with these great educators like Piaget. Because I'd seen children in a sand pit with a block of wood going chuff, chuff, chuff. And I'm thinking, you know what? That is not a block of wood. That is a train or it's a tractor or a truck. 
And so I wanted to challenge the fact that most of our educational system was based on developmental theorists telling us what children normally did and normally could be expected to do. Piagetian stages of development, sensory motor stage, you know, all the operational stages and so on and so forth. You, you'll probably have written essays on it, Matt. I can see you blanching now because your memories of that. Yeah. essays on child development at, at uni. Look, so I wanted to use this issue of maps and mapping to demonstrate that this was an over-reliance which was killing us in geography because we were asking the wrong question. And the question I felt that we should be asking ourselves is not what children normally did, but what could children do, even young children, if they were taught properly. And so I designed, um, I test, I found out, for example, that a great way to lead children into understanding topographic maps was to get them looking at aerial photographs, large scale black and white aerial photographs, which is where I said, and then I realized that nobody had done any research into children's ability to read such uh, aerial photographs. So I, that was part of my PhD. And, but the main part of it really, Matt, was then using um, or building apparatus um, which incorporated aerial photographs and models and what moved from three-dimensional models to the aerial photograph to uh, a, a, an abstract um, symbol. So, therefore, being able to show that children, even at the ages of four and five, an area you know, where you've taught, you, you, it's one of your own areas of expertise, Matt, um, I got them making, not, not only understanding topographic maps, but actually making them. Um, so that that's and people, a few people got quite excited about that and they gave me a PhD. So there we are. <laughs> Fantastic. And do you think, um, was it easier to express your opinion after that conversation with your professor? Did those lessons from him? Well, yes, yes, it, or it was. I, I, I really, I think if you don't believe in that which you are doing, then you're never going to do the PhD because, you know, you're working at two or three o'clock in the morning and, and, and unless you've got something, some sort of mission, some sort of zeal, some sort of zealotry, which is hmm. going to drive you through, you know, the, the, those small hours of the morning um, where, where you, you know, the same person will be saying, what on earth am I doing this for? Uh, you're just not going to survive. So you do need to believe in, in yourself. You need to believe in your product. And I know, uh, Matt, you yourself, you're looking at doing a PhD. And one of the things that, yeah, the, the exciting things is to do is it, it, it will, one of the important things to do is to actually get excited about it and say, look, people need to know this, what I, that which I'm doing, you know. Otherwise, yeah, you're just going to crash and burn, I think. Yeah. So, Tim, it's it's quarter past eight at night. Uh, in, in, in It's midweek. Um, and you seem um, endlessly uh, passionate and excited and engaging. Um, what are you like during the day? Um, <laughs> are you are you someone who is um, endlessly passionate? And if so, how do you maintain that? Because I think that seems to be a sort of a trajectory, at least after you retire, to kind of settle down and and, and all that kind of stuff. But you seem as excited as ever as you have as you are in the in the direction of where things are going but well, firstly your, your comments that. are enormously kind and enormously flattering and, and and but 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 my feet are very much made of clay and certainly my energy levels um are, are limited uh, trust me i'm a great fan of the papa nap at this stage of my life Lovely. Uh, <laughs> um but look uh 
I, I, I'm excited by life. I, I choose to, um, I, I choose to engage. I, I enjoy people. I enjoy challenges. I enjoy problem solving. Um, I'm, I'm blessed now to work on the board of a number of organizations, including Arrow Christian Leadership. And as I mentioned, the, the Fathering Project and I'm an, an, an ambassador and one or two other organizations. And uh, I, I find that enormously fulfilling at this stage of life. I think I'd much prefer to wear out than rust out. Um, mm. I, I, I think, um, you know, when the, the day will surely come when I'm looking for the cold comfort of a bedpan. Uh, in the Whispering Pines Retirement Village, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the, uh, until such time, um, you know, I, I'm and even at, at such a time, I'm hoping um, that that I might still be able to have a, a kind or an interesting conversation with somebody uh, to affirm them, or or indeed to make a contribution to educational debate in some space. Um, now, I, I I I don't doubt that you know, with the passing of every month, if not year. Um, I'm, I'm becoming more and more of a dinosaur, but for, for the moment, um, you know, I had the privilege of 10 years on ABC radio with Richard Glover doing drive time at, at six o'clock or so, half past five to six on the ABC for 10 years and, and occasional gigs on Q&A and, and Sunrise and stuff like that. So uh, the, look, those, those are now becoming increasingly rare. Uh, and, and I'm really comfortable about that. For everything, there is a season under heaven. But now I'm doing a lot of work in uh, the ICT space uh, and digital learning and digital courses. And I find that enormously enriching. Right now, I'm, I'm, I've got a great project on, Matt. I'm, um, I, I wrote the training manual for boarding staff in Australia called Duty of Care. And I'm now writing an international version of Duty of Care, which can be delivered digitally uh, around the world. And, you know, that's I have to say, I'm finding that a great challenge. And we've, we're well into that project now with uh, Richard Stokes and the Australian Boarding Schools Association. And um, so, yeah, look, I think I, I think it's probably just um, the way I've been wired. But maybe it's because I'm a twin. He, he, I was never left alone with the twin and, uh, and I, I can't be left alone. Otherwise, I fret. Fantastic. I, I I think it sounds like, I mean, I don't know any people that uh, as, uh, who have uh, described themselves, it's definitely not my words, um, as a dinosaur that have a tech educational startup. Um, I think that is quite astounding. Um, I did, uh, did want to ask, um, Tim, you talk uh, extensively in your work about the qualities of school leaders. Um, why is that so important? And what are some of these qualities that you think are so essential to school leaders and have these changed in recent years or are they consistent? Well, I think they have changed. As I mentioned earlier, I think, I think the requirements of school leaders have um, uh, unfortunately have become um, at the expense, I think, of the relational element, um, far more bureaucratic. Now, there'll be a lot of people squealing when they hear that. Now, so all know it's relational and bureaucratic, but I actually don't see that uh, myself, to be absolutely frank. And uh, I mean, there are some people who are just wonderful school leaders who are massively good and gifted uh, bureaucrats and, and red tapers, uh, and also great, you know, great company at a dinner party and, and have those relational skills, God bless them. Um, I, I can't think of very many, but uh, they, they are, they are, there are certainly a few. Look, I think 
for me, to be a great and effective leader of a school, I, I think three things need to happen. You need, you need to have great leadership of self, you need to have great leadership of the school, and you need great leadership of society. Uh, by leadership of self, I, I mean that you're no good leading others unless you can actually have got a good grip on yourself and can control yourself mm. uh, in terms of, of, of sleep, eating, in terms of your morality, in terms of who you are and what you're like in private, in terms of your devotional life, in terms of, of, of who you really are and taking a, uh, who, who are you? You know, there, there it is in, in Les Mis. You know, who am I? Who am I? I'm 24601. We all need to sing that and to ask that of ourselves. Who are we? Uh, and, um, and, and, and to what extent am I proud of myself? Mm. Now, look, none of us can be perfect in all, all these spaces. How am I physically? How am I, how, am I looking after my body, the temple of the Holy Spirit? How, how am I intellectually, mentally? What, what am I reading? How am I feeding uh, in, knowledge and information and new ideas into my life? How, how am I morally? Um, and, and, and what am I like in private as a person? So I think leadership of self. And then secondly, there's leadership of the school. Uh, and there are two major areas there. There is obviously, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the bureaucracy side of things, which is on the bursorial side of things, the administrative side of things, compliance side of things. You've actually got to be able to do this. Now, in my case, I couldn't. But I was blessed because, and, and herein comes a great truism about, about leadership, particularly school leadership. It is not necessary for a school leader to be able to do these things. But it is very necessary for a school leader to be able to get them done. So in other words, you need, I needed to build a team around me, not least I needed a very good bursar, somebody who could count. Um, and I think so much of leadership in that space is about team building. It's about empowering and equipping and affirming a team and aligning them to that which is important. So there is that element of school leadership. And then, of course, there is the teaching and learning side of school leadership, which, of course, is what it's about, um, really, you know. And, it, it, and, and so you've, you've got to understand teaching and learning. I Even as a head, I used to take emergency or relief classes to remind myself of the classroom and also uh, to breed a certain degree of, 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 of indecision and, 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 and caution uh, when, when teachers would, would daily want to take a day off and then they would recognise that the headmaster might in fact be taking their lessons and be looking at unmarked textbooks and things, so or exercise books rather. And so, uh, look, it, it, I, I think you've got to be able to cover off on those bases. And I really don't think, um, despite where the world is going, that you can be a great school leader unless you've been a great school teacher. Mm. Uh, I hold to that. Now, that's going to immediately consign me to uh, the, you know the era of pogo sticks and hula hoops, but look, I still actually believe that. So look, leadership itself, leadership of the school, in the, particularly in those two areas, and then finally the leadership of society. I really think that society is looking at schools to be one of those firms, island, firm islands in this world swamp from which they can take their moral, ethical boundaries and, and directions. Certainly, the media has failed us in that space. Um, and certainly, I think governments are failless in that space. And I think I think schools are one of the very, very last vestiges of hope for, for humankind as places to teach and to prepare 
our future generations with the values and the skill sets needed to flourish uh, in, in this world. So I think those are the three skill sets to be the, the great leadership of self, the, the skills needed to, le to lead a school, both administratively and also in the teaching and learning space, and also the ability to make a contribution to society. Fantastic. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, Tim, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, I know it's getting on to 8.30 at night. Um, I did just have a couple of questions, a couple of hypothetical uh, scenarios, uh, if you will. Um, if I was um, just about to step into the classroom for the first time, whether that be in independent or in public schools, um, I'm a brand new teacher and I'm sitting down with you uh, for a coffee. Uh, what advice would you give me to love my job in 10, 20, 30 years time? Well, it's a great question, Matt, and, uh, and how lovely it is that you should ask it because not enough people are actually asking those sorts of questions. I actually don't think we do teacher training particularly well in this country and would love us to step up in that space. And look, I think the sort of advice that I, I would give is, is, is look back yourself, a bit like Professor Ewan Anderson said to me, back yourself, but be yourself because, and, and, and don't be afraid, don't be so private that your students don't know you, that you're a closed book, because students need to respect the person before they'll respect the knowledge in the person. Uh, and so if you if you have an abiding love of of of, of Hawthorne football team and 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 and, a, and, a, and an absolute love of Coltrane's music, then then let them know that. Um, I think also go in with with high expectations and, so, and sit down with your students and say, hey, guys, look. I don't know what it's like with your other classes, but we want this class to really sing. What do you want from this class? What sort of things do you want? And they'll want, they'll say silly things like endless chocolate fountains to start off with. But then they'll start settling down and they'll they'll start saying things like, we want it to be fun, sir, but we want it, we want it to be knowledgeable and we want uh, we want to be able to do well in this subject. Uh, and so, okay, that's all great, right? Well, I'll try and do that. Now um, and I'll do that by, you know, making sure that content is, as far as possible, engaging and, you know, appeal to all different senses and different learning, preferred learning styles. I'll try that. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm me. I'll drink the fountain, the chocolate. No, no, no. What are you going to do? And, and after a while, they usually settle down. And they start things like, well, OK, look, we will do our homework. We will respect the rights of, of the teacher to teach and the rights of fellow students to learn. We will. Um, you know, remember to bring our stuff. We won't prat around in class and we won't disrupt learning. And, and, and to actually work in partnership with the students in order to create that really good culture. The culture in the school might be, might be very different, but you've got ownership of the culture in your classrooms. And I would say to teachers, you know, the young teachers, take ownership of that, create that culture. Um, I also, people ask me, you know, how did you become a head, you know, quite, quite so young? Um, well, there's a great deal of luck in it. There's no question of that. But I think what I always tried to do was to just to go the extra mile uh, and to and make the, my lessons just a little bit more interesting. So you develop a reputation in and around the school. Um, and, and, you know, as the good book says, you cast your bread upon the waters and it will surely get washed back to you. And so I, I gave sacrificially of myself to my students and particularly pastorally, 
it's often not recognised that you can't actually get any knowledge into a student who is anxious and shorting out with anxiety, their synaptic gaps are firing off and just refusing to be able to process any knowledge and, and until and unless you've actually met their emotional and emotional needs and and their mental and you know you've addressed their mental well-being issues so yeah so not and so in other words have that pastoral heart as well as that academic heart when you go into the classroom fantastic and what would be one piece of advice if i uh, was sitting down for a coffee with you and i was about to step into the role of a principal or a head teacher or headmaster sorry <laughs> Maybe don't do it, or uh... well, I mean, I mean, the trivial thing is to say is to say, look, you need to develop the skill of develop of being able to drink three cups of coffee before nine a.m. and to keep it into this in the system until after nine p.m. But I think probably, <laughs> I think, I think to say this, give it your best shot. You will make mistakes. Yeah. But recognize that. Uh, be honest and acknowledge those mistakes learn from them and recognize that in the end, um, your judge is not the broad flapping ears of the Fairfax media or, uh, or whatever. Um, you know, in, in, in my case, and for those teachers of faith, we will believe that we'll be held ultimately accountable before our heavenly father who loves us and is all knowing and to take some comfort from that. Certainly I've had to take comfort from that, from some, you know, some of the, the, the bad times and the issues that I've, I've had to face as headship. And I have found it enormously comforting. Fantastic. Um, Tim, there are so many questions I have for you. But like I said, I do want to be uh, respectful of your time. Uh, one final question. Uh, what do you want uh, your legacy to be? Could be personally, professionally, could be a bit of both. It's up to well, you. I'm going to go back to year nine. And I want some boys to actually not spell a lot as one word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, look, my, my legacy. Look, I think... I mean, the, the two schools which I have led, St. Leonard's College and the King's School, people have been gracious and kind enough to suggest that they've been bigger, stronger uh, schools and better schools with, a, with, a, with an improved culture. Um, and and, and, and that, I find that encouraging when, when I'm reminded by my students that they, they saw that change or my colleagues. Um, I, I have to say, I, I, I am proud of the work that we've done in setting up the Australian Boarding Schools Association or ABSA. Um, but I think in, in the end, it, it is not these big things, uh, you know, getting an OAM and, you know, Order of Australia Medal and all this sort of stuff. Um, it, it's not these things that, that count. It's, it's the aggregation of all the small things. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's talking a child you know, through suicidal ideation, it's 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 taking a punt on a a child who um, is in care, foster care, uh, whose parents are in prison, and giving them a bursary at your school, and seeing them graduate at the end of twelve years, hugging you and saying they're going to get a job in the police force. You know, it's wow. these things are for me the most precious things. Uh, rather than the medals and other bits and pieces. Fantastic. Dr. Tim Hawkes, I am so, so grateful that you take the time to talk to me today. Um, it has been an immense privilege, uh, not only to read your work and to follow uh, your journey, but I'm, I'm so glad, like I said, that you would 
uh, call me today on a weekday and have this conversation. And my hope is that there would be teachers all over the world that get something really meaningful out of our chat. So thank you for taking the time. I, I can't express my gratitude enough. Well, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure, Matt. And, um, and may I just wish you every blessing with your ongoing uh, leadership uh, of, of schools, which is significant. And indeed, the potential of, of doing that doctorate and just wish you every blessing in that space. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All the very best. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.